and welcome to HBM Podcast. I am Basileos Leon VIII, born in purple, in Abraham, emperor and avocat of all Romans. And I'm joined by Frank. Frank, how are you doing? Hello, Leon. I am a, in a powerless archbishop that cannot be played because, because I cannot, but I exist. I am there watching. And uh, not liking my liege, so therefore I'm not giving them money. Uh, hello. As long as you don't send an angry letter to my head of religion, I am fine with it. My sibling in Abraham. We shall see. We shall see. Hey, uh, since you don't know for sure, do you want to go on this hunting party with me? Mm. Just us two. Sure. It's the things we do. <laughs> right? <laughs> And we are talking about a little game called Crusader Kings, both two and three, because I have not played one, and you cannot waterboard me to play that game. I, at some point, I'm going to have to look it up how it looks, but it's probably going to be terrible. But yeah, no. no it looks no, rough. I mean, two looked rough at the start, so I can barely imagine how one looked. I would humbly disagree on the fact that it at least had a cool 3D map. Yes. Oh, boy. I like maps. I'm a cardophile. I think that's the word for it. Not quite sure, actually. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no. If, if, a, if a game has a good map, especially a strategy game, I'm already one foot in the door. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it, uh, it, has, it has 3D, like little uh, mountains and scapes and stuff, and it has colors. So that's all my ADHD brain needs, to be honest. Wait. That's already... Uh, yeah, quite frankly... <laughs> That is the case. Um, yeah, no. So this is a what people call a grand strategy game. It's quite something. Yes, that is the classification for it. A grand strategy game is not in what we would call real time. So it is not, and it's also not turn-based usually, but doesn't have to be. Hmm. It's at the right, or do you feel? I don't know. I'm agreeing. Because I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what hmm means, Frank. So you're going gonna to use, have to use the words here, Frank. But um, okay. other than that, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but uh, other than that, no, it's it's a, uh, it's it's a an instant exploration of that subgenre. It has a, well, we have talked about Paradox before, I believe. And Frank and I got to talking about Paradox games coincidentally fairly early on in our relation, I would say. Oh, yeah. Um, it definitely jump-started a couple of things, I would argue. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and now we're here. Now we have two podcasts. So partially, I would say it's uh, Frank's good character and Paradox Games that we have to thank for this. Um, yeah. Oh, it's no. The same can so, be said for your character, my friend. But yeah, we're uh, talking about one of the map games. The, the map yeah, game map company. Game. Yeah. The map, yeah, that's a very good way to describe it, I think. It's uh, It definitely has this sort of online meme status, but not necessarily in a bad way. No, it, it both plays up it and it's kind of unavoidable because of the mechanics, but we'll get to that. Yes, Lord, we will get to that. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it has a, a large following. It is a well-known Paradox game in the collection of Paradox games, but not the most popular one. Which yeah. I think is still EU four, followed closely by Hearts of Iron. I would argue. I would. I would say. I think so. I'm not that, quite sure. That makes sense, but I think we'd have to eventually um, talk about their general appreciation. How I don't know they're accessible or not. And EU four is not beginner friendly. 
Um, not that Crusader yeah, Kings w- 2 is, but 3 is definitely better on that aspect. Yeah, I think Crusader Kings 3 is even more beginner-friendly. Oh, yeah. It has a better visual language, I would argue. Its UI is bigger and a little bit clunkier than the second installment of the series, but the third installment does make it, therefore, more easy to interpret, I would say. Humbly. Yeah, I agree. As someone who didn't struggle a lot with uh, Crusader Kings and learning its mechanics and its UI, I got lucky, I guess. <laughs> I I still don't fully understand Victoria 3, so once again, not a... Not not saying I paradox games are easy for me or whatever. Yeah, it took uh, Hearts of Iron took me a little while, and uh, EU four took me a long time, and then I stopped playing it for a couple years, and now I'm like, fuck that, I'm not getting back into it's it. It's too late. Yeah, I wished I had made a decision before buying a lot of DLC, but it's fine. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's it's quite all right. It was on the sale anyway, so it's, it was doable. God, God. But yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, no. So I would say if you're <laughs> If if you are familiar or like have heard about it or have heard about Paradox Interactive, that is the producer of this game, this is not a bad one to start at. No, you do need to like history and specifically medieval history a little yeah. bit at the very least in order to make this digestible. Because I would say just the strategic element of it would not be enough uh, for you to warrant the purchase of this game. Yeah, I think there are better options available out there that really get to that sort of strategic element, I think. And we're going to get to that and how this game handles history. But I think the one of the things that made, and this goes for CK2, very approachable to me, even before I played it, is, how, and more than other games, more than EU4, more than Victoria 2, because uh, those games didn't exist. Um, well, because 3 didn't exist, that's what I meant. And in a way similar to, but more than Stellaris, is that Crusader Kings is focused on a very on a much more narrow experience, despite it's a very wide scope of medieval history. And I think that it's almost much closer to a role play thing, mostly more than other games. So I think well, it definitely that, has a role playing element. I would say. yeah, I think it's the one that leans heavily heavier on it, and that's made one of the things that make it a lot more fun because. You can't you can't role play the spirit of a nation in Victoria Free, uh, although you can role play an empire in Stellaris. But you can't role play a character, a person in Crusader Kings. That goes for two. That goes for three. Where it's like, okay, what would this character do? And Free has some more interesting ways that sort of show or point towards what the character would and wouldn't do with a particular mechanic. But yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, <laughs> sorry. No, I I just had a moment of like, shall shall we describe the game generally speaking? Yeah, I would say like to to uh, add on to what you were saying, I would say that this game is more unique because yes, you can in like Victoria Three, as you mentioned, pre-configure an idea of how your country that you're picking, like think of a geopolitical narrative for it. Yeah, and that's the closest role quote-unquote not quite sure if that's a role still but that's that narrative is like you can aim to stay true to that preconceived narrative yeah and this i would say with with uh the fundamental change of what makes crusader kings unique as an opposition to the other paradox games is that you are playing a dynasty so you're playing a family yeah and you then use play a specific person within that family 
but your scope needs to reach beyond the individual person that you're playing. You need to take care of the family of the dynasty and not so much of a singular nation or a civilization, which is the... It, it's like you said, it has... The other games have a much grander scope of uh, of narrative, of yeah. gameplay. Whereas this is hyper-personal and therefore can lead to uh, a more, more role-playing friendly setting. Yeah. And also a very quick note before we get into it, we are probably going to talk about history in for a large part. We're also probably going to talk about, well, some other notions as well that might be of interest for you, even though you're not interested in this game. Oh, so yeah. please don't be uh, afraid with all this uh, explanation about the video game. You can listen to this uh, if you're even remotely interested in medievalism or uh, historical notions about yeah, the time. Absolutely, characters. like that. While we or we're just history in general. Oh yeah, exactly. Like while we're going to talk about the game and some of its mechanics, its issues, and and you know, it's it's our starting point. Effectively, it's a starting point for us to talk about historical theory and medieval <laughs> history in general. And don't be put off by medieval history in the sense we're going to talk about it. It's it's more interesting than you think. I, I'm going to say this now. I was going to say this at some point during the episode, but I might as well start with it. Crusader Kings 2 was the game that made me realize I'm more interested in medieval history because it showed that, like, beyond that... Because I, I knew tacitly that's like, oh, it, it's not the Dark Ages kind of thing. That notion was false. But Crusader Kings 2 made it visually active. Like, there were, it's not a slow... There was a lot of shit going on in uh, medieval Europe, if you want to think it just on those aspects and that classical notion of, um, of medieval history, there was a lot going on. So, you know, this, this is a game that kind of embodied that a bit. So that is one of the things that piqued my excitement. And what we're going to talk about should pique your excitement more. So stay tuned. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, but don't feel obligated to. But uh, yeah, no, I do think, uh, once again, this is one of those games that lends itself for a lot of external discussions and approaches that one can have to talking yeah. about this game in its setting and uh, hope that at least some of it is very is interesting to you dear listener <laughs> uh, if you're here hoping for a very detailed discussion about the game game mechanics probably not going to be it so i'm sorry for that uh, if that's what you're here for if if the opposite is true if you're <laughs> really really into this game and you were hoping to get some uh, hot takes on it don't worry we'll probably talk about another um paradox installment yeah, sometime we're, we're gonna somewhere. try and strike a, a, a reasonable mean between both things because we, we can't escape either of them but it should be it shouldn't be too much of just one thing we hope definitely so i would i'd like to talk about scopes of two games real quick yes the second one the second installment which i do slightly like more than the third one even though both have very interesting how do we say this? Gameplay mechanics. Let's yeah. call it gameplay mechanics. And it's also very unfair because the game, even though <laughs> Crusader Kings 3 is two years old, which is uh, which is only a thing that <laughs> Paradox players will understand, but it's a relatively early release for, or it's, it's relatively recent for a Paradox game. What I mean yeah. with that is that Paradox, uh, well, financial model, but also therefore gameplay model, is that you buy the base game and then you have to buy DLC installments to explore more of the game. And the base game is depends on which title we're talking about, but the base game can be okay to quite empty and um, uneventful sometimes. Uh, well, once again, this is a personal assessment, but 
that's uh, that's definitely once again that is a meme within the uh, discussions that that are going on about Paradox Interactive, and yeah. this is their business model. And they uh, there have been some changes in there, but I'm not necessarily very interested in talking about that. They have now a subscription model as well. And, uh, once again, mm-hmm. that's not nobody comes here for that. I think. Yeah. I hope. <laughs> if so, let me know, and I can talk more about the economical sides of gaming. Whee! But uh, I don't I don't think anybody's <laughs> necessarily waiting for that. Uh, also because it's quite obvious, I would say. But well, I think it is. But that's that's neither here nor there. It's the ga- the second one, which is once again my favorite, stretches from the year seven hundred fifty six. Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't know for sure. Something right. along the line. Essentially, um, when when Charlemagne happened, up till uh, like you can play then up to fourteen hundred something. Fourteen fifty three. Which is uh, okay. an extremely abstract uh, delimitation of the end of the medieval age. Uh, I'm familiar yes. with that because I've, I've read on that discussion. Because that is supposedly the fall of Constantinople. Massive inverted commas there. Because that, that that's uh, does that mean something? What exactly does that mean? Of uh, some two hundred things, but yeah, the. It's the end point of the game, and we're going to leave it at that. Is it a, a reasonable end point for medieval history for the medieval period to call it as such? Absolutely not, and we'll leave it at that. Yeah, um, surprise, surprise. Frank and I are not going to approach anything univocally ever. It doesn't okay. how things work. Uh, at least I think so. I don't want to speak for you, Frank, necessarily. No, but I, I agree. I, I had, a, had a strong suspicion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> having talked to you for multiple years now, I had a strong Quite. suspicion that. Uh, that uh, that I would be right on that uh, that score. You are, but yeah, but but then uh, in defense, I would argue that if you're going to pick a date, that's not a bad date to pick. Oh no, I would argue. I mean, like, like I, it's... I'm speaking of in general terms. Like, does that date mean anything? Not really. Is it a good endpoint for a game endpoint? Sure, it's as abstract as any yeah. other. And it, since you need a, a a literal endpoint, might as well take one that it has been or was accepted for a while. So I am perfectly fine with it for the game yeah i would argue that with contemporary scholarly consensus that the fall of constantinople did accelerate some processes that were already ongoing namely that the ottomans then blocked europe from spice trade and uh that this accelerated the uh building of boats and colonization and so forth i strongly (laughs) distance myself from people who say that that caused colonialism from Europeans, but because uh, that would have happened no matter what, I would argue. Um, well, okay. So Interesting again, discussion. We need to have it at some point. Yeah, well, the once again, this uh, the Ottoman blockade of spice to Europe is, uh, once, again, once again, that is not as simple as it sounds. There are, once again, a lot of dynamics to that and nuances to be made. We don't have time for that, sadly. No. And uh, once <laughs> We are not, um, well, none of us uh, are like scholars on medieval history. Yeah, I'm not a so, medievalist. I may be a historian and, and I'm fairly familiar with a great deal of concepts of medieval history and a bit of contemporary scholarship, but I do not know the intricacies and detailed aspects of those. So we we will defer, and this is not uh, on a lack of research or anything. It's just that we are not experts on it. So we might as well point you towards experts who are it. So... Um, Leon pointed it out to me a while ago. Uh, the We're Not So Different podcast by uh, Dr. Eleanor Yanega. Is, is that her name? Yes. And uh, I'm so sorry. Another guy called Luke. 
Yes. Uh, I forgot his name. I'm so sorry, dude. He's, he's um, great well, anyway. too, but she's yes, the, he's the great too. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So once again, uh, humbly referring to her and her private Patreon is also very good. So I can wholeheartedly endorse. She also released a new book on. Um. Well. Okay. I'm so sorry. I also forgot the title. It'll be in the show notes. Yes, it will be, and uh, I will find find a link to it as well because it's good. Uh, from what I've, I only read a script so far, and I thought they were very good. Oh, good. It's it. It talks about like how we approach uh, like sexuality in me- in medievalism, in, like oh, medieval stages, and how this is then used to denounce women and like you know the a lot of medieval concepts are just that concepts and are used by people in very bad reactionary ways to take away freedom from women. And right. uh, once again, they don't necessarily refer to directly to medieval periods, but they, uh, those ideas do find their origin within uh, medieval writings and so forth and so mm, on. Like certain conceptions that were built from medieval examples. Mm. Uh, we will revisit the notion a little bit later I would yeah. think um, I'm going to be preachy about a couple of things and I'm not going to feel sorry about that uh, yeah. that's it <laughs> just, just period but once again uh, if you're interested in that uh, I can wholeheartedly recommend her work she's amazing yeah period, period. <laughs> just, I'm not going <laughs> to yeah sorry I'm not going to talk about too much about that <laughs> um, yeah so Crusader Kings huh what a what a game what it's, a game uh, <laughs> It has so that one has a, a Crusader Kings two had a very big scope, um, like couple couple centuries that you can play a singular dynasty. Yeah, I find one. Well, okay, moving on to three real quick. Three made a separate choice by choosing between. Oh Christ! I, sh- I once again should have looked this up as well, but eight hundred sixty something. Something along those lines, I think. Okay, eight hundred sixty something and. Uh, and also the year 1066. Yes. 1066, very important medieval year. Uh, William the Conqueror invaded England, or uh, whatever it was called back then. Yeah. And uh, my, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit rusty on my Anglo-Saxon. I'm so sorry about that. And uh, yeah, so that that's a very interesting year. Uh, there was a crisis in the Byzantine Empire. But then again, when, when wasn't there a crisis Ooh. in this Empire? <laughs> uh, <laughs> other than that, a couple, a couple of very interesting things going on. Uh, the rise of the Normans, you could argue, but yeah. uh, there's also uh, something happening in the Islamic world as well. Um, so there's those are very interesting picks to uh, well, those are very interesting picks to pick, uh, <laughs> very interesting choices to to for starting uh, dates in those games, um, or in that game in the third one. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting choice. It's a it's a good one, but I prefer more choice rather than fewer in this case. So once again, that is a big contribution to why I think the second one is better. And yeah, people say, well, there will be DLC for it. There will be DLC for it. And, and no, no, thank you. I shouldn't want to have to pay for that, I think. For, if you want to add a couple more, and if you want, if you have like five different starting dates or what have you, that would be different. And if you then add a six and a seven, that's paid DLC, I would be a lot more cool with that, which was the case in two. And I think, I'm pretty sure. Mm. I'm not 100% sure about that. Because once again, it's one of those games that has a lot of mods for it. It has a very active mod community, yeah. which we should do an episode just on the conceptualization of mods. Oh, we I should. Because be. uh, once again, community and in different, different aspects, stuff. I think. Uh, you know, yes. going off from something like the 
Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic 2 and the modding community there to the modding community to a game like this. The, Skyrim. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of discussions to be had uh, on like w- what can modding do? What is modding doing? How does it work? What role does it serve uh, in a few different circumstances? So we'll get to that. But uh, yes, definitely now, the concept of Definitely, the concept of European, uh, European community-driven content is very interesting to me. Oh yeah, for now it's just uh, uh, something to note that like this is a thing for this game as well. Yes, and I rarely have played it without mods, so I might mention some features <laughs> that might be attributed thanks to mods rather than uh, standard gameplay. But um, yeah, I'm so disclosure, disclaimer, whatever. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I've washed my hands of it now, so I will. Uh, I will move on to. Uh, well, what uh, what do you think we should get into first? Oh, do uh, do do we want to to get to the to the historical theory of it, or do we want to get to like the this perception of medieval history and that? Um, let's do the second one. Let's um, because the starting date earlier starting date in CK two uh, allows you to, allows you to play in a. Uh, Europe that I find very interesting. Yeah. And also this game, well, to tag on a little bit what you said earlier, mm-hmm. I always liked medieval history, but mm. I didn't l- know how diverse medieval history is. Right. Because once again, there is <laughs> not not to be not to be uh <laughs> not to be controversial here or annoying or whatever, but there might not be a thing as medieval history. As in oh, that quite. the years <laughs> Yeah. Early medieval history. And there's there's some diligent categorization within me, uh, medieval history, and I'm fine with saying medieval period. I'm not going to be an asshole like, well, technically there isn't such a thing as medieval history. Like I'm not going to be that person. But since we're getting into it right now, I feel allowed to say that the medieval period is very uh, turbulent. I would argue, but then again, when has when and isn't that in history? I suppose, but it is. Uh, it's fundamentally different from each other, and like the uh once again there's no univocal point on where to say or like definitive border on where to say this is where medieval history started this is where medieval history ended we talked about the ending but i think the same could be said about uh beginning yeah because there's this very gray period yeah like i I mean the the thing about medieval history is that it's uh it's it's in the name or it's clear in the other name in the middle ages uh it's supposed to be a middle period literally that that's what it means yeah that's what uh, it means <laughs> yeah. between you know the the more uh renaissance industrial periods afterwards and the uh roman empire Classical. beforehand so the the study dates for for this well colonial then uh expansionist period rather than industrial that comes later but that's why the benchmarks for beginning and end are a the the extremely arbitrary date of the fall of the Roman Empire, which is like the conquest of Rome by... The Western. Western, of course, thank you. Yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> the, the collapse of uh, the Western Roman Empire. And again, with a very abstract date uh, of a particular invasion of Rome and this fall of Constantinople at the other end. That's Those are the, the, the markers for the period. Are they genuine the markers? Row. Quite. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> you're correct. That's what it called itself. It's called itself the Second Rome, Constantinople. That's that's a joke there. Sorry. <laughs> but they did. You're correct. So those are like the, the period, the, the periodization, the, the, the extremely classical ones. Right now and for quite some decades now, uh, 
that's not been the case or that those notions have been expanded and there aren't specific points where it begins and ends because historical periods are an abstraction. So, you know, they, they don't exist before we say they do. Pretty long point to say that uh, we, we are working, as we are talking about the game, with what the game terms it, which is this classical idea of the period. And what we what became more interesting, at least for me, is that, like, there is a lot going on, like, just in terms of, like, against that idea of the Dark Ages, where it's a very stunted historical period, there's not much happening, history is kind of at a standstill, it's like, um, from one point of view, um, <laughs> of, like, people living their lives, it's like, not really, and from a larger point of view of, you know, this this thing of, like, uh, nobles and con- um, conquering nobles and that kind of thing, um, they very much would disagree that it's like, no, history is not standstill for us expanding our territory, uh, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, well, once again, there's a lot of those odd notions about medieval history, I would say. Uh, particularly yeah. about medieval history, I would argue, even though I'm not quite sure if that's necessarily an argument I would like to make, but mm. it is It is definitely, uh, in everyday-to-day conversation in my uh, environment, there seems to be more about the uh, medieval history rather than classical or post-medieval, I would argue. But mm. once again, that might just be a personal observation. I'm not going to get into it, but <laughs> there's like there's, there's a bunch of differing, varying notions about uh, medieval history that I think uh, would benefit or people <laughs> making those arguments or uh, the, maintaining those assumptions and notions would benefit from hearing what you just said. That's that's long or short of it. <laughs> well, that's, shall we? Uh, I, I need to. I, I'm afraid I need to mention this. I'm sorry. It's in my historian no, no. card, and I need to say Obviously. this. Um, oh, definitely. Uh, well, it's like oh, I, 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 It's it's grating. It's insufferable when people talk about. And we're going to talk a bit about this because you mentioned like how a lot of reactionary movements are based on things and ideas that you know came up or were cementing themselves in the medieval period. Uh, but that's like, oh, we're we're going back to the medieval period or all these medieval measures. It's like, shut up. Shut the fuck up. Can you just call it fascism? That's a lot easier, actually. And, you know, more <laughs> historically significant than, oh, the medieval. This it's, Oh, it's like the Dark Ages. When, when they mention the Dark Ages, it's even worse. So <sighs> yeah. it, it, it continues to evocate this clear uh, or... And, utterly wrong idea that the medieval period was the dark ages was wholly negative it was terrible it was awful and on that metric we can argue that pretty much every period is awful depends on the lens you're looking at so you know for for a slave the classical period was an equally a nightmare it's uh, it's interesting that you say slavery as well because people justify a lot of things and i think slavery is a really interesting example because of that <laughs> um, people justify a lot of things by saying well, people thought that slavery was okay back then. And it's like, did you ask the slaves? Quite. I don't think the slaves thought. And this is this um, this notion of history being passed down by elites, by only like, you know, the, the important people, the people who made the decisions, the people in power and so forth, who historically, throughout history, have not necessarily been the best of humanity, <laughs> I would argue, humbly. So right. once again, this this notion of like, oh, we just didn't know any better, or oh, there was steep intellectual decline. 
uh, well, yeah, well, okay, sure, we stand on the shoulders of giants and so forth, and I would argue that it's not always a, uh, <laughs> equivocally like a um, positive thing, but I would I would say that, yeah, obviously we benefit from those who have come before us and so forth and so on, even though they might have shaped paradigms in a negative way, which is kind of what we were, were talking about already, like this idea that um, medieval Europe bad and especially because tyranny of the Catholic Church is a very Protestant narrative, I would argue. <laughs> and, True. well, you know, yeah, it's... And not to say that they don't have enough source material to pick from. I mean, they're not entirely wrong about it, of course. Okay, so this we're going to get into this a little bit earlier than I would have hoped, but <laughs> this has then to do with our, what Frank and I would like to indicate as it lacks a notion of sincerity, I would argue. Yes. Once again, because the Protestants had a case to promote, namely Protestantism, um, they had to <laughs> they had to justify their existence. There, it's this idea that that is not a neutral party. There is no such thing as a neutral party in history. No. At least I I think yeah. About, I was about to say there is a more neutral slash less neutral element to that we can maybe approach certain things from, but that gets messy very quickly. Oh yeah. And, so, so once again, there's this, there's the uh, the paradigm crafted, handcrafted, and nurtured and thoroughly fed by Protestants of once again uh, intellectual decline under Catholic Church, is uh, once again not that sincere. I would argue, uh, despite no. there being a strong sincere case <laughs> to condemn uh, any organized religion for that matter. Right. So well, anyway. So yeah, that's uh, that's something that's very interesting, I think, and something we should all bear in mind. Yeah, uh, to to lay that point on, I think what is interesting about it is that, like, on the one hand, yes, that they're proposing a case uh, and a defense for themselves and for their own existence, but that operates uh, in two different levels. One in a devalue, I, I don't want to say underappreciation, but a I don't know, a misleading view of their opponents or their rivals, however you want to put that position uh, across the table. But also with a denial of a great deal of positions because of uh, where that uh, anger is coming from. What I mean by that is uh, Luther was a lot of the time, unfortunately, speaking to nobility and not the common people, which uh, leads to issues. But um, the point is there is a there are two types of criticism you can make, and they're both necessary and important, but they operate in different ways. It is one thing to oppose, question, and criticize the institution, uh, the Catholic Church, the Vatican, Rome, the Papal States. All that merits criticism. It's another when you mischaracterize and makes them into a faceless mass, the people who actually believe them, the uh, yes. peasants, the, the people who, who lived, the people who believed. I think for me, uh, the big point is I get very annoyed and this goes for Catholicism because I am a Catholic, but not only Catholicism. I, I feel I take that point generally for pretty much any religion, I believe. Um, I think, and, and I'd like to think I'm consistent about that. But uh, <laughs> I just don't get many circumstances for, on, on other positions, and I don't pick fights. But whenever that position comes across for any sort of religious belief, because those discussions are rarely taken with the, and that's why I, I, I write it as sincerity, with uh, a sincerity, it's like the person you're thinking about, the person you're criticizing, the person who you are talking about believes this genuinely, not in a sense that they are being cynical, not that they are being 
insincere or in bad faith about them. Um, sure, those examples exist, but do we want to use them as the norm for investigating this? And that's why I mean by looking at them with sincerity. Okay, so if people believe this or they say they believe this, then what can what conclusions does that lead us to? What analysis, what engagement does that offer us? And I believe in a very general sense that Crusader Kings offers us a more sincere position in the way that it pairs off things in a certain balanced way with some of their mechanical elements and in the comparison of the different peoples, groups, religious organizations, institutions, and so on, in that it portrays a power balance and not a judgment of beliefs sometimes. Again, that that is not always consistent. I, I will raise that point, and I, I don't think it's always defensible, but I think it poses a more interesting um, historical narrative or historical starting point than just like, oh, uh, the Catholic Church is bad or Protestants are bad or heresies are bad. Uh, no, they're, they're distinct and they interact and engage with one another in distinct ways and therein a lot happens. Sorry, I just ran with it. Go ahead, my friend. No, 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 definitely. apologize. Definitely. No, no, no. Uh, actually, it's very good because I do did want to suggest like uh, talking about more medieval stuff. Uh, from elements from the game because we do need to talk about the game yeah because <laughs> uh, we were just going to talk about medieval medieval stuff and our social notions and conceptions about it otherwise which is not what we're here for um partially maybe who knows partially. but um <laughs> this is once again i i do want to use the game as a jumping off point and i uh i would then like to well start at the beginning uh using the time frame of the second game once again, don't worry about dif- differentiating between the second and third game. If you play the games, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And if you haven't played the games, it doesn't matter. Don't no, it doesn't. It, it, <laughs> no so worries. It's, yeah. It's, it's, uh, so so uh, don't worry about like keeping track of it when, oh, this is about the second or this is about the third. And it doesn't matter. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's just, once again, it's using as a jumping off point as much. Yeah, as you're, you're effectively justifying where you're bringing it from, but... To, if you yeah. don't know, if, if, it's effectively not really important. It's just like, oh, if you, if you know, this is what Leon's talking about. This is what I'm talking about. If you don't, it really doesn't matter. Yes, and I think the general selling point of any Paradox game, except for Stellaris maybe, is mm. alternative history as well. Yes. Or, like once again, this is the larger meta role-playing that you're doing, if you will. Because you have this preconceived notion about like when, what, what to do and what not to do. And... I would say that CK2 is slightly different in that regard. CK3 more so. Mm. And I will get into the difference why I think so uh, later on. <laughs> but I, I do think, uh, to start with the, the beginning of CK2 as well, like the earliest starting date, is the start of when uh, the father of Charlemagne and Carloman I die. The second, actually, I lied. Um, maybe the first of his kingdom. I'm not quite sure. Once again, Frankian, uh, ha, Frank, no, uh, Frankian medieval history is messy, and once again, it's called the Dark Age because we don't have a lot of sources. Yes, yeah. that's from that period. It is not intellectual decline. Um, there is the best case you're going to make on that point. I would argue is uh, infrastructural decline because it is true. I believe that a lot of uh, medieval rulers took like uh, like marble or like not marble um like big stones out of the 
roads that the Romans had built and used them to build fortifications. So <laughs> I don't know if that's, once again, it might, I didn't uh, verify that before recording it. I'm sorry for that. But it sounds like something uh, Europeans would do. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's like, fuck the roads. And so there's was a decline of maybe infrastructural stuff and like centralized organization, which was then have heartedly resumed to buy the a, a new guy in big hat called the Pope. And um, well, he was around for a while already. Don't worry, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but um, interesting figure, and he the, the 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 authority of Rome then rejuvenated in that period as well. I would argue humbly. Once again, yeah. um, moving through history really fast here, and there is a bunch of asterisks <laughs> and nuances all over the place here. Oh, so, absolutely. But, <laughs> Yeah, but at this point, you already know that. So I'm not going to like, this is the last time I'll say it. So, you know, just as a courtesy call, <laughs> everyone, don't worry. Um, I'm not <laughs> presenting, we're not here to present a, a a scholarly or factually thorough, correct view. Well, I would say still <laughs> grossly factual, if that makes yeah. sense. Um, yeah. <laughs> so once again, and if, if, I'm, if I'm wrong about that, feel free to add me. I'd love to learn. If long as respectfully, oh, I'd yeah. love to learn. Um, yeah. So feel free to let me know. Let us know. And I will gladly correct my mistakes. But other than that, a, the start in that period that I find a very interesting period is the, once again, the rise of Charlemagne and also the period before that, which the game doesn't allow you to play, but I do find that a very interesting period <laughs> in history, namely because I love the transition periods. Like we, we already talked this about this a little bit, yeah. mainly because I never believed in a, uh, a border of history. History doesn't have borders. History just has continuous processes. Quite. And, well, yeah. And... It's um, and like what happened after the Roman Empire fell. Like once again, there there was a decline of sources, and once again, if you want to argue infrastructure, but not so much uh, knowledge, not in the uh, rigorous and tremendous way. European medieval European sensationalists will have you believe, I would argue. <laughs> but it's it is was very interesting period of history. Like okay, what do we do now? Like there's no longer a Rome question mark. Maybe farther to the east. There's a guy who dresses in purple and stuff, and he thinks he's like the Roman emperor, and like maybe he is, depending. On, he speaks Greek. That's weird. Anyway, <laughs> other than that, it's, it's it's all Greek to me. But other than that, it's um, we have now have this new guy that is apparently very important, and this uh, solidification of Christian dominance of the European continent. Just for those who haven't played the game, the map that you get to play on and the world that you get to interact with is larger than I would uh, than I would have thought about your average medieval game because once yeah. again because the West there is this medieval Europe and because Europe hadn't discovered quote unquote that's a lie but uh, <laughs> well okay so once again that statement needs to be heavily new have heavily nuanced <laughs> in my humble opinion because we knew a lot um <laughs> It's just because Europeans were not very good at remembering things or documenting things, as especially as opposed to their other Mediterranean uh, counterparts, who <laughs> were, in my humble opinion, miles ahead about of like documentation and archivation and oh, yeah. so forth and so on. We'll get to that, maybe. Who knows? But it's um, <laughs> the start of uh, this period of Charlemagne, and especially the period leading up to that, is something that I find very interesting. And I don't get to talk about it a lot because nobody knows anything about that period. Well, nobody, yeah. When when people talk about medieval history, it's like either um, they all know Charlemagne, but nobody knows Charles Martel. 
or nobody knows Pippin the, the Younger, or yeah. what have you, or uh, the, anyway, and and like with Pippin the Short, sorry, not not the Younger, uh, he ruled earlier, I believe, not quite sure, but it's um, the Short is the father of Charlemagne, I believe, and his brother Carloman, who died at the totally not suspicious and ripe ancient old age of twenty years. <laughs> Because there was this little thing called Gaffelkind uh, inheritance, which means that every son gets a little bit of land from the dad. And uh, which means that you don't have one strong central, centralized ruler, but like you split up your kingdoms, you split up your, your duchies and counties and so forth and so on. And Charlemagne was like, no, I think. <laughs> Once again, it's not proven, but um, he, he died suddenly. He suspicious circumstances. Yes, um, there is a, uh, once again, I don't know the validity of this source, and that's not for me to judge anyway, but I recall reading a long time ago that he just went to a house somewhere and then died, <laughs> which is, um, which, you know, I would have I would have found it less suspicious even if he was openly assassinated, because then we could just at least argue that it was, might have been a vassal, it might have been whoever, really. Yeah. Um, if... If he gets, if he dies very mysteriously, and his brother, who stood most again from his death, and then was in charge of literally European historical records or Christian European historical record for a while, and then conveniently there are no records on it, I find hmm, a lot of things are clicking together, huh? Anyway, that's just once again one of the things that I really like about that period, because everyone's like, oh, Charlemagne, amazing. Uh, it, a, a virtu- uh, virtuous, uh, true European king that everyone models himself afterward. And I'm like, oh, that notion also needs a bunch of asterisks, but that's not a hint right there. Um, it's, uh, it's, yeah, well, anyway, it's it's interesting. I find it, uh, I find that period always very fascinating because, once again, it is often overlooked and it is of tremendous influence because the Pope and Charlemagne, once again, a couple of asterisks here and there, but the Pope and Charlemagne essentially decided, like, okay, this is how this Christian European feudalism is going to go down. And these are the rules, and these will gradually change over time, because, once again, there are no fixed points, only only processes and concepts. And well, anyway, I find that very interesting. I can, <laughs> I don't like this word, but I can only describe it as this bromance between the Pope and Charlemagne, <laughs> who... The Pope was essentially like, oh, all Christendom belongs to you because you're a guy and I don't like that girl over in the Byzantine Empire called Irene of Athens, who was very good to her son. Don't Google that. Um, it's... <laughs> Christ. All right. No, let's not talk about that. But once again, he, uh, she stayed in power. There was a woman in power in the Byzantine Empire at that point in time. And Charlemagne was like, hey, how about you crown me emperor of all Romans? Just kidding. Unless? Question mark. And then Pope was like, yeah, sure. And that's uh, that's kind of how that started. Once again, um, being slightly humorous about this, but sadly not as <laughs> inaccurate as all that. Um, yeah, they really didn't like women. That's, that's uh, the Pope didn't like women. They, he did like, like strong uh, conquering men, apparently. That was his thing, the Pope, apparently. Not judging. We, we all like what we like, but... Um, very, very, very interesting favoritism going on there. But uh, yeah, so he had a lot of uh, ecclesiastical people at his court as well that like uh, essentially wrote history for him, <laughs> which uh, we might get into this notion of how epics function, if that's interesting to you. Because yeah. that's a mechanic in the game. 
and I always find epics very interesting. So I don't know. What, uh, yeah, I, I do you think... have any strong feelings as the <laughs> as the literary historian among us? <laughs> well, I think it it's interesting. I I can think about this in terms of the game mechanics, like how what are the game's currencies? Um, <laughs> which which is not a starting point, but you right. hopefully the the listeners will will follow the the the. <laughs> The train of thought here but effectively there are a few well there's the major currency which is gold or money, money. um money money sorry uh, gold um gold. sorry uh, no don't <laughs> uh, and but there's another really big mechanic which is prestige and prestige is it, it allows you to do different things but it's effectively the representation of how your character is seen by by others generally um again there's the, the mechanics of the diplomatic range so the characters who you'd be able to interact with with a great more deal of ease and possibility and so on and effectively it's how you are seen politically diplomatically uh in socially. that regard socially yes and that's and that currency allows you to do a variety of things and it allows you to ask for certain favors, it allows certain forms of communication, you use it to declare wars, you need more than that, but still, for the sake of the, the argument. And the the epics, and I, I think that becomes more interesting in Crusader Kings 3, and I will say why. But epics yes, are something that you create and generate, which both allow you to, the, something that can be transmitted generation to generation, but that generates a great deal of prestige. So effectively... It's um, that thing that you wrote and spend money on can allow you to become more popular and more well-known in the world or in the world as you know it or the world that is important to you and where you have power and that creates power to you. So by creating a narrative about yourself, your realm, your family, your dynasty and so on, you can use that to become more powerful. That becomes a tool in for your power or for your growing power, which, while cutting off a lot of steps in between, is not entirely wrong because that is historical narrative in a nutshell. Unfortunately, uh, it is a tool for power for most of uh, his history, so to speak. So yes. these epics are exacerbated narratives that allows the consolidation of power or the cementing of power over a long period of time of a dynasty, of a figure. Um, it is notable, and that is really interesting. And it's, it, Charlemagne is not a name. Charlemagne isn't a, a real name. Um, no, it's not. <laughs> um, it's just Charles. Exactly. Um, is Charles Battle. Magnum. Or Magna from Great. Magnus. Exactly. Um, yeah. In, in other languages, that becomes more notable because it, it doesn't become a single world. It becomes Charles the Great. Charles the... Carlos Magnus. Carlos Magnus, exactly. And Sorry. It, it, no, no worries, thank you. And in <laughs> English, that kind of goes into like, oh, it's Charlemagne, it's his name. Not really. But again, that is a part of that historical narrative which was built and, and written and constructed over a long period of time. And what is interesting, and I mentioned Crusader Kings 3 on that point, is that there's a, a, another currency which is called renown. There are more than that, but for the sake of the point. And renown represents the prestige of your dynasty, of your family. Uh, and epics, or yeah, epics, I think they maintain the same name, 
can generate a great deal of prestige or a great deal of renown. In other words, by fabricating history, you make your family in the long run more and more powerful, more potent, more capable. Because more renown both gives you more bonuses in general, but it also allows you at certain levels to pick certain bonuses that will make your dynasty stronger in the long run. Yes, we can talk and about that as a real thing, not really, but because unlike uh, in video games, all that sits generally at a nice edge, and great dynasties fall. <laughs> um, well, we... go ahead. Sorry. sorry. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Don't worry. Um, it, I would like to say, like, yeah, it does have a it's such an interesting element to history in my humble opinion especially political history which guess what i find very interesting surprise surprise <laughs> um it's it's this idea of well it has so many different dimensions um two that i want to talk about real quick and then you can go ahead i'm so sorry no no I, I'll forget I, it. I, I said the key point of what i wanted okay. so feel free to carry on <laughs> and, and to to tack on to that i would say that um like especially the role that epics have played and like you know like justifying present situation or even better um claiming that it was a prophecy fulfilled and established what has just happened as justice or even or even once again even better god's will that's who if you can pull that off you're set yeah <laughs> i'm being facetious but uh, that will happen more throughout not this episode, enact, facetious but accurate <laughs> yeah it's and then um well, we see that and we see like how the origin of rome this is classical period, I'm sorry, but I think it's very important to um, show the longevity of epics and their long, uh, just like the power of literary history in general, I would argue, yeah. is uh, very interesting because the, myth- the mythification of the origins of, uh, origins of Rome is very interesting to me. Yeah. Like um, like Brutus, like the ancestor of Brutus, the guy who killed Caesar, he descends from the people who killed the last kings of Rome and established the Glorious Republic. Then Rome uh, is supposed to be a divine land or like marked as, as favorable by the gods because this guy from Troy came all the way to Rome and was like, hey, this is these are some cool hills. I'm going to build a city here. <laughs> and uh, anyway, like Rome, like uh, what are they called? Remus and Romus. Um, what, what do they call in English? Uh, Re- Remus, Remus and, and Romulus. Rom- th- oh, okay. Sorry. Probably Romulus. Then, no, right. Those guys, right? And, um, <laughs> well, talking a little bit about uh, Charlemagne and Carlman, um, <laughs> uh, Romulus and Reims was like, uh, were like, yeah, well, what would be a good name for this city? And uh, Remus said, uh, how about Reims? And he and Romulus was like, think again. And <laughs> and, and suddenly that, that Remus stopped living at the ripe old age of very young. And <laughs> that's how we're getting to see a pattern here, by the way. But talking about actual patterns, uh, Rome then eventually fell, but its myths remained. Oh, yeah. And every empire then from there on out um, claims it is divinely ordained. And rhyme, so it's true. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> I'm a professional scholar, shut up. <laughs> and it's, uh, and um, so, but, but, you know, like the Holy Roman Empire, which was necessarily not holy nor roman and sometimes an empire that's the, that's <laughs> the common joke about it yeah, but that um, is the joke that is the joke about the holy roman empire it was so holy holy not at all roman 
and sometimes an empire if you stretch the word long enough. Yeah, I think uh, there's a good case for being called empire. I think it's a very interesting empire and it's eternal diplomatic and uh, political dimensions are very interesting and you can do a whole episode on that. It's politically deeply interesting, much more than the Roman Empire. Yeah, the German princes are like so. It looks very interesting to me, and like the rise of the Habsburgs is also far favorite part of history for me personally. Mm-hmm. But once again, not going into it uh, <laughs> too much, sadly. But it's misremained, and like I talked about, um, by interrupted Frank because this is important. There's a reason why Constantinople called itself Rome too, the sequel with a vengeance, and it's it, it then like you know it used it's well. It's propaganda, if you will. I don't know if that's necessarily the right word for it, but it's definitely not a wrong word for it. No. Um, it's <laughs> it, it, it used that propaganda and its myths and its, you know, well, its prestige, if you will, f- to generate its own uh, justification, its own reason for being. And I think, well, anyway, that's very interesting. And we can see the longevity of myths from uh, the fable mythicized uh, Aeneas coming to Rome uh, because he's led by Venus because Virgil said so trust him (laughs) totally true totally great historian trust the Roman Virgil yeah (laughs) yes Uh, when in Rome or whenever read Virgil it's um, it's (laughs) it's uh, yeah it's an interesting interesting dude Uh, you might know him as like the uh, fan fiction topic of Dante Alighieri but um, other than that it's (laughs) All right, being a little bit more serious now, but we see this uh, uh, function of epics stretching in real history far beyond its original uh, place and can have this um, element of justification, which is very interesting. And later on, claiming descendant from either in the classical era as a Greek, um, oh, I forgot, like, um, well, anyway, I don't remember necessarily who claimed descendant from whom. But in the classical era, people were just claiming to be descendants of gods. Um, then later on in the medieval era, in the Viking era, every great Viking dude was like, like Ragnar Lothbrok was like a uh, descendant of Odin. Sure you were, buddy. Um, it's, it's, and like stuff like that. Um, then later on, uh, we come full circle by claiming that uh, like certain uh, Scandinavian politicians uh, in like 1600 or something like that, claimed to be descendant from ancient uh, myth- uh, mythicized Vikings. So they claimed to be descended from Ragnar Lofbrook or whatever, one of his <laughs> one of his sons, one of the little biggies. So, the, so the, you were talking about that, and I found it very interesting because that has a very real visceral political reality to it. And well, it's just a political move. That's what it is. Claiming descendant from the gods or from historical figures. That's uh, that's what I'm trying to get at. It's a real political, tangible thing. Exactly. It, it is a justification, and that becomes easier when, when you have a, reli- a, a religious head of your faith, like the Pope, which can establish, and that, that lasts longer than the medieval period, by the way. That goes on oh, to yeah. the, the, uh, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, whatever. That, that carries Up on. to Napoleon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, this Napoleon just... f- had different ideas, though, but that's not the inner there. It, yeah. Uh, it, it worked until it didn't. Um, yeah. But this justification for empire, for a divinely ordained, for being selected, it, it's, it is a, a, a historical political tool, which, you know, was, was used in, in the name of power or, or expansion or control and, and so on. Yeah. 
pragmatic. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> people like to fabulize it. If I'm bringing it up, it's because people like to fabulize it or romanticize these ideas. I'm like, well, that's... Uh, if you want to do that in the privacy of your own room, that's fine. <laughs> um, but if to put that forth as this notion is just highly revisionary and I don't think has action. Yeah. Well, why, why I said pragmatic is because it was a deeply practical move and that's the end of it for me personally. Um, yeah, and I... even if he was descended of this dude that lived centuries ago, so what? <laughs> it, it's so unimportant to me. So yeah, anyway, that's, uh, that's the thing that I see pop up um, amongst discussions about history. Mm-hmm. If who is descended from who and whatnot, and I do find uh, family trees very interesting. I do like that element in uh, this game as well as outside of it. <laughs> but more as a well, the same reason why I like maps. I just like things mapped out, I guess. But it very firmly does not go beyond that for me. It doesn't have any material effect on the worlds for me personally. Yeah, no, I think I think the interesting demarcation of that is when we we realize or we look at that and we see it all as uh, not just practical or well, really as material. Again, with the materialism, because um, we're <laughs> dialectical materialists, and yes. especially when we see it as contingent, and I think that is the key. And I think the game does that quite interestingly. That this um, to give a very basic example. Um, <laughs> this is an entertaining one. You don't always know if the the child that you and your wife had is your child, and you can look <laughs> away or you can try to find out. But that's not always a sensible move. And does does the game care if if that if they are or not? Only if other people know, or only if you make it a big deal out of it. Um. That is a very down to earth kind of thing, but we're talking about inheritance, about about a political heir, about someone who will inherit a, a kingdom, a, a duchy, a county, and uh, what well, we're saying that a part of the point is that, like, yeah, the the truth here is very relative and at times not really important. So we'll we'll carry on. Um, <laughs> Uh, that that is kind of the the point I, I want to make with this example, and that the game I think carries a, a lot of it interestingly. That none of these things, like these claims, these uh, will to dynasties, there when you mathematize them in in such a way, they don't become as well. They're destitute of their divinity, so to speak, and oh yeah, it, it becomes you know material uh, when you can oh. Uh, <laughs> When you can justify conquering territory by buying a claim via favor by a religious appearance with the Pope, that 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 takes the magic out of it, doesn't it? That takes away the prestige. Where it's like, yeah, I uh, because you like me because I did things for for you for the for the Vatican. Will you uh for you the Pope uh, for the Papal States? Will you will you let me take this land? Sure, thanks. I owe you one. Yeah, it's that's a very interesting. Uh, like two things that I want to get into about that in general, both game-related and I suppose not game-related because once <laughs> again, it's so fervently set in its time period that I think it's applicable to both. Yeah. Um, despite having this quite this broad disclaimer about like, well, you know, it's not about the intellectual decline was not as bad in, as you thought in medieval Europe or medieval times in general. Um, <laughs> that being said, <laughs> doesn't mean that they were very smart people or whatever. 
It's just, um, well, like the podcast we recommended, we are not so different. And there are a couple of interesting things to say about that. Um, obviously, like when, when we enter history in general, we do not just enter, a lot of people would describe it as going to a foreign country. I would say it's a different dimension altogether. <laughs> like that's how different it is, in my humble opinion. Because once again, Frank and I, I, I think, I, once I, again, feel free to correct I, me if I I'm think wrong. So in, here, I right? need to interrupt very briefly about that point because sure. that's a very great book, which I'm actually reading right now. I need to carry on. Um, the Past is a Foreign Country by David Lowenthal, which is a very interesting yeah. and a fascinating book about how we understand history, how do we engage with it. And Yeah, thank you for picking up on that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I don't mean to, to be to be snide or like, you know, to be uh, mean about that, that sentence. It's it, I get, once again, I fully endorse the spirit behind that sentiment. Um, yeah, no, I, just, I, I think I, would say, uh, I took it as you mentioned it as coming out of like, oh, the idea generalized outside of its context. So that's why I'm bringing yeah. it back. It's like, this is where it comes from, or this is where it's most interesting or more well-developed example, which is this incredibly elaborate historical study, um, which I do recommend thoroughly. It's very, yes. very good. And it's a very good read as well, which is a rare uh, characteristic. But uh, your your point is definitely valid. Like it's uh, for, for, for that sentence, for the analysis, it's enough to say that it is a foreign country. But for, for the sake of our point, like it's, it's much more than that. And that's great. Yeah. And I, once again, I, I'm not saying that this is Lowenthal's uh, idea or whatever. Mm-mm. It's just, once again, uh, it's a typical Leon thing here. And I'm so sorry, but it's, uh, I don't like the conceptualization of calling it a foreign country because that's too uttering for me. Fair. I, I rather than use the more unrealistic or well, hmm, the more mind boggling con- conceptualization of another dimension. Yeah. And why is it so different? Well, in short, um, People are responding to a different set of social constructs. Su- surprise, surprise. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Once again, dialectical materialism. Yay! Yay. Um, historical and <laughs> historical materialism, dialectical materialism are going to be the two threads woven throughout this entire episode, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and for good reason. Yes, and once again, uh, social constructs, asterisks. There's a bunch of. Once again, I'm not just a simple constructivist, but other than that, it, it, it does carry some weight here especially social elements and conceptualization of it. And yeah, anyway, so um, going back to uh, what I was trying to say about like uh, this, this set, this set of uh, social constructs that we are now trying to understand as, as we ga- ga- cast our gazing back into history. Um, I think, and what you mentioned about its scope, I find very interesting because it ha- it carries good effects in the case that you, uh, pointed out, and I agree with that wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. I would then also have to be my annoying self by also adding mm-hmm. on to that. We, um, and this is once again something that Frank and I talk about a lot and probably going to talk about even more in future uh, episodes, but to uh, give a HBM uh, hallmark discussion uh, another another go, another spin, is how do we... There is an uncomfortable side to that as well, I would say, to this skill. And Thus, making a game out of making a game at this scope, that operates at this scope at this scale, um, which is so broad and you know, uh, spends such a long time period, do we automatically then trivialize it by doing that? Because we are going to have to cut so many corners, and it's simply impossible to make a a game uh, that's historically accurate. Because once again, what we have to go off on is 
interpretation of historical records. So there's no true history in that regard. Like objectively correct, I would argue. Yeah. A lot of people, you know, you know, just small asterisks. That's just I, I, every historian will tell you as much. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll comment as you when, you when you finish, but carry on. And uh, just real quick, like, uh, and it also has a side to it that makes things maybe a little bit um, insensitive, because uh, to <laughs> to name an example, an option, and I believe my. I'm pretty sure this is in the base game as well. Feel free to correct me, Frank. Mm -hmm. But an option in the second game is to expel the jury, for instance. Yes. Um, and this is materialized through pressing a singular button. Yeah. And, um, oh boy, uh, that, that notion carries a lot of historical weight and also social, religious, and a bunch of other things uh, weight. And so, <laughs> oh boy. Uh, and then, but then I would also counter argue that a problem that I have with the Hearts of Iron 4 game, which is a World War II simulator, um, that's like, for instance, for, uh, for example, we don't see any, um, you have like news pop ups in that game, historical events mm -hmm. as well. They show you like a fake little newspaper and like an historical photo or a couple of fake ones if you do an alt history course. And none of those are about the Holocaust, I believe. Yeah. Quite sure. That, yeah. So uh, to leave out this and essentially play a sanitized Nazi Germany is also not it. So once again, <laughs> you have to negotiate this this degree of sensitivity. And I think, uh, who? Um, well. <laughs> okay, so I said there's no uh, way to, uh, there's no singular elements active throughout medieval history. I would correct that and say anti-Semitism. <laughs> anti-Semitism is the one constant, yes, uh, very unfortunately. Um, it's the one constant throughout, uh, well, I would say uh, European medieval history. I was going to be broader and say larger European, longer standing European history. Oh yeah, but we're talking about medieval and like yeah. I said like, well, the medieval period doesn't exist. Well, there is one, <laughs> there is one element, very uh, thoroughly represented in the medieval history. Uh, a lot of stereotypes that uh, the Jewish people uh, still struggle with today. Yeah, it come from medieval. Uh, well, <sighs> I don't know necessarily what to call it. Um, medieval baseless accusations yeah yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean i i was doing some research the other day and i was like i um i'm, I'm not gonna go, go into it but it's it's a lie it's a very well documented lie because it's a lie about uh, uh blood libel which i expected oh, to yeah. be something much later google if you want to find out it's a big lie uh anti-semitic lie of course and it um i thought it was much later from 17th 18th century no 13th century actually because uh, of course it is. Yeah. So and and there are apparently reports even earlier. It's just the the more I don't know constructed from the twelfth or thirteenth rather. So yeah, um, yeah. Um, quick parentheses. Long standing discussion in the Hearts of Iron thingy whether the 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 final solution should be implemented. Um, uh, the 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 thought I came up with is that like that that um it was an inevitability. So if you are playing that country, uh, Nazi Germany, then that is happening, and there's nothing you can do to stop it if you're playing it, um, or as you're playing, if you're playing it as a fascist, so to speak. 
If not, well, then it wouldn't have happened. But uh, if you are continuing as that, then that is happening and there's absolutely nothing you can do if you're playing that country, period. I feel that's the only, with many inverted commas, positive way to implement it as that because, you know, it, it becomes, um, I'm not going to say erasure, but it becomes like a, a looking away. It's like, let's let's avoid this, but can you? And for this, you can't. And we have such like, it's also such a thing about how we move on in time. Somehow the past, the past becomes negotiable and political. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's it's the past. It, there, there, there were just things that happened, period. <laughs> well, that's... Uh, yeah, I know. I'm just going to keep it at that. I'm well, sorry. To go to you, the... were, you were going to say something. No, I'm going to go to the point that you mentioned that so there's no uh, objective uh, history, and there isn't, which doesn't mean that it's not a science. History is a fucking science, and I will fight you. Um <laughs> Always, uh, <laughs> if you disagree, because history is a fucking science. That, that's enough said. Um, because there's yeah. plenty of reasoning and arguments and method and work and education and diligence to for it to be scientific. If you want to argue in those terms, if you want to expand that, that, then it's a different conversation. But within that framework, it is. That said, though, historical revisionism is a regular thing because. Okay, so to talk about how writing of history and, that, that, and how it intertwines with this. we History happened, that is a thing, but our understanding, our engagement, our writing of history is always changing because if you were going to write about history in the 18th century, you were looking at it from the 18th century. And we, if we're writing history in the 21st century, to take these extremely arbitrary time uh, measurements, just as reference, uh, you're going to write it from the 21st century. You can't not write it from the current period because that's the society, that's the world you live in, this is the context that you have, these are your references, These. this is everything that surrounds you. So you cannot let that go. And if you let that go, then you're not really creating historical documentation. Um you're you're not actually doing any type of historical work in that sense. You're just inhabiting that past. And then where is that the criticism? Where's the, the where's the scientific element? On the other hand, you can't forget the fact that the past is a different dimension, a different country, because it's otherwise, if you want to apply the exact same standards in the same way, which doesn't mean a lack of criticism, a lack of judgment, but if you want to purely judge the past from the present without, you know, the, the careful work together, you're just being anachronistic, which is the the application of posterior uh, chronological historical concepts, or not just historical, but concepts from the future into the past without, you know, the, the considerations of what those realities and what those concepts could, would, and the ways they manifested. Um, yeah. What I'm saying with this, and I've said this quite a while in the podcast, it's something I've been saying for years, and I will carry on saying it, and I think that is the tension between doing historical work, is that you are looking at the past with the lenses of the present. I, I believe that is by, from uh, something adapted from the historian uh, Claude Lefort's work, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure. And the point is that, yes, you are looking at something that is distinct, but you cannot take off these lenses, which are the ones of our present. But we need to be aware of those all the time. It is a very delicate balance when you do that. 
And when you recreate it, such as in a video game format, there's a lot of balancing that needs to be done with that, especially in a mechanical sense. So on the one hand, it would be deeply problematic to incorporate the Holocaust as a game mechanic. And I think we, yes. we can imagine why. Um, we do not need to go into that. On the other hand, what does it mean when that is not present in the game or in a game that is reporting to represent uh, World War II, the years beforehand and the few years after it? <sighs> yeah, definitely. So, and sorry. Go on. No, go on. Okay. So when we're thinking about this with medieval history, what are the considerations that need to be taken? What works best as mechanics and what shouldn't? So um, the impersonal dimension of pressing a button to expel Jewish communities from a realm as like a, a game resource is uh, it's not good, Chief. It's really not good. It's <laughs> deeply insensitive and pretty terrible. Um, yeah. Because it, it, it takes away like, okay, you want to make it a game mechanic? Sure, then do the work. Make it be as awful as it was period um and if you really want to do it you don't need to do that but again you can make it as a thing that is happening or a thing that happened unless you take a very specific historical path and like in this current one and none yeah. of this and i guess that this is part of the point with uh paradox games and this one in particular there is no previously demarcated historical path it's not determined it's conditioned so the general point sorry for, for going on about this leon no no, um, no is that i agree with everything so far so one <laughs> great uh things are up for changing things are up for being different this uh to get an example from crusader kings 3 in the way they implemented the uh the Iberian Peninsula conflict is how I'm going to say it, which is the conflict between the um, generally Muslim, Muslim realms in yeah. the most of the Iberian Peninsula, of Al-Andalus and more, and the uh, Catholic Christian realms in the north, and how that conflict shapes, and via some of the mechanics, which are DLC. Uh, anyway, um, not good, but anyway... <laughs> It's... Yeah, you have to get into what to categorize and not categorize as DLC. That could be the whole episode, so we're going to just gloss over that. I'm so oh, sorry. yeah, I'm just going <laughs> to... It's DLC, sigh, the point. It, <laughs> there, are, there are different resolutions to the conflict. Some of them implicate, like, a detent, where there isn't... There's some tension, but there isn't a, an all-out war. Some imply the historical result we are familiar with, which is termed the Reconquista. Um, which again is historical fabrication, because why is it why is it their land? Why why really? <laughs> the... Because it was uh, Roman, and they are the inheritors of Rome because they followed the guy with the big head in Rome, so they are allowed to have it. Of course, they are or something. Uh... Well, so this is an interesting notion because can can I? Were you done? I'm so sorry. No, carry on. Okay. So a couple of things, once again, that you've said that I found really interesting. And it's that, and it will be game-related, I promise. <laughs> um, so um, once again, we see this 
Rome falling and it's Miss remaining again here as a as a current as a motif, if yeah. you will. And then, um, especially because once again, in, <laughs> in CK, uh, the Iberian Peninsula is also one of my favorite starting places. Both, no matter what religion I'm going to pick, yeah. it's not going to be my religion either way. So <laughs> it's, I don't really have a horse in that race. Well, that's not true. Uh, I will say uh, the the uh, Muslim population in the Iberian Peninsula was considerably better to Jewish people and other sorts of people. Famously. Uh, more about that. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I forgot his name, but there was this uh, famous um, Jewish trader and merchant who then had all his ships sunk and um, had to uh, had to switch careers. Um, being uh, being well-educated, he became a, a physician. And uh, during that time, he had two roads to travel. Like he could go through Europe, he could go to uh, the North African uh, territories. And at that time, the, uh, the ruler in Cairo had a strict, uh, well, had as close as anti-Semitic policies as Muslim rulers came. And he still chose to go through the Muslim countries. So <laughs> take take from that what you will, dear listener. But uh, well, better than to go through Europe. That's what I'm trying to say. As well. Yeah, and well, anyway, there's a bunch of things to that. But um, so I think this is very interesting. What you were talking about, like um, this a historical element to it, and or like sensationalist um, element to it, or a like revisionist or what have you. Mm-hmm. And I think. The game finds a, once again, we can have a moral debate about this. We already kind of had, and <laughs> yeah. we've already briefed it in another episode. But the game then turns those historical interpretations as options to manifest for the player. It, yeah. it, if you want to do the historical revisionism, once again, it, uh, should you want to do that? I don't know. That, that, once again, there's a lot of asterisks that we already talked about extensively right now. So you know our opinions uh, going forward. I'm going to have to cut that out of the discussion because otherwise we'll just repeat ourselves endlessly. <laughs> but it 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 it, louts, it it creates this decision economy, if you will, yeah. for the player to either be historically accurate or historically revisionist. You can be, uh, once again, you can get uh, in charge of the uh, Umayyad Caliphate, uh, Caliphate and like you know, conquer the Iberian Peninsula and solidify Umayyad rule, or what have you, or get a comeback as a, as the Emir of Granada, or what, anyway. So this is also, also very interesting. <laughs> and once again, but it is also, <laughs> ooh, um, we are entering a moral swamp, if you will, by once again doing that. We already stated why that is. And uh, yeah, anyway, I found this very interesting. And in many ways it's a fun way to interact with history i guess to uh, allow more narrative or not narrative n- more historical interpretations of sources in your game at the same time so you don't have to necessarily pick and choose you can implement both uh, you can in- implement moral m- multiple narratives because of that because of the player's choice this again <laughs> We we hit a bit of a moral quandary when the moral uh, when morals uh, perspective is unleashed upon these choices and so forth. Mm-hmm. But yeah, to talk a little bit about like the expel jury button, as I'm going to call it, um, it's uh, it's not a specific button, but it's like a list from options you can click on. It's a, but it, it's it, just if it one. It gets better. Yeah. It's a generic button. Yeah, the, not really. Um, so, no, no, I mean in the sense believe... that it's not a specifically 
unique yeah. button, but it's a button similar to others. That's what I meant. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know if that makes it better necessarily. Actually, no, it <laughs> makes it worse. But... That's what I meant. That, that was the, that was the irony there. Okay, <laughs> okay, fair enough. But it's um, yeah. Anyway, so I, I find that I believe uh, I usually played with uh, when I played CK two, played with a mod called CK plus, which added more of an element to it, mm. namely that then the neighboring countries. Once again, it's been a long time since I played this, so I don't know if it was necessarily that mod, but I believe it was that mod. Uh, that enabled you to, as a neighboring country, to accept the, Jew, uh, the Jews. And your country would have an economic uh, or uh, scientific, not just economic, because that would be problematic, um, but like it would have a couple of different boosts. And uh, this is historically accurate, because once again, yeah. if you look at the slightly post-medieval or very late medieval era of um, uh, the, uh, the degree of Alhambra, um, uh, I should have known this, but anyway. Um, so Ferdinand, uh, Fern- uh, King Ferdinand, and that person he married—I forgot her name. Isabel. Isabella. Isabel. Isabel. Yeah, Isabella, and who solidified Spain, uh, who are still on a pedestal in Spanish history, uh, did horrendous things yeah. to Jewish people, and like essentially <laughs> generated this concept of crypto uh, Judaism or crypto Christian Christianity and whatnot and what so forth. Um, that, that's not linked to cryptocurrency. Don't worry, it's different. Um, but but then there's this historically accurate account of the uh, Ottoman uh, Empire being like, oh, you don't want those scholarly, well well educated and crafty people. All right, I will send ships to pick them up. Actually, and they can live over here. And yeah, guess what? Ottoman Golden Age not long ago. <laughs> but once again, not saying that it's single-handedly because of the Jews, but it's, you know... Certainly it's, a, um, a good tool to adopt uh, great people as to your well, court. I would argue, once again, I everything I should say is with Aztecs, but <laughs> as close as I will get to get a solid statement, I believe that all empires thrive on multiculturalism. This has always been the case. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. once yeah. again, <laughs> there's no great the empire, empire that didn't embrace. Yeah, well, Roman Empire, um, I would say like the Dutch trading empire, which once again, it's not a good period in time. Let, let me be very clear. But yeah, anyway, so to accept multiple cultures and faiths in your empire has always led to positive outcomes. And sure, there have been frictions between cultural groups, but once again, um, there's also like this, well, maybe not golden age, but like maybe silver age in the um, in the for the Sultan of Cordoba, who accepted Christians, Muslims, and Jews yeah. all at the same time. And there are Jewish scholars that are still were very influential in uh, a bunch of different fields that were from that area, from Granada, Cordoba, and Sevilla. And it's anyway, <laughs> long story short, I I do like that because it could have been just. Once again, I will never say it's ideal because the depiction of such such gravity as, as anti-Semitism is never going to be great for me to experience in a video game. Yeah. But that little addition of a mod was was very meaningful to me. Because, yeah, well, once again, it's, it then at least takes the political stance of, hey, expelling Jews is bad. <laughs> expelling a certain religion from your from the grounds of your uh, of your empire is bad, actually. It's condemnable. And yeah. yeah. And those who do embrace multiculturalism, you know, might get smaller problems because of that, but overall it's a good thing. And I think that's a fairer shake than 
than anti-Semitism has received in many <laughs> different uh, media. So, yeah, you know. that is improved though, yeah. like, in, in some ways. I don't know about the specific case. I don't think there's a button anymore, I, I hope. Uh, but uh, in terms of like these cultural conflicts, which don't always need to be conflicts, there are decisions and paths you can take in Crusader Kings 3, which can lead to wider cultural and religious acceptance. Yeah. One thing that I want to get into real quick, I have to like go a bit, go through it rapidly because I'm looking at the time as well. <laughs> it's um, what I like about this game in general, both games, uh, three maybe a little bit more than two, but I'm, I'm not, not not necessarily want to define uh, di- differentiate between the two on mm-hmm. these two. <laughs> I'm gonna say stop saying two now. <laughs> I'm gonna I don't want to differentiate between the two games necessarily, but both have a rejection of geographical determinism yes yes as in as in there's no ontological concept of europe there's no ontological concept of the middle east there's no ontological concept of africa and so forth and so on there culture is a tremendously fluid thing and no and so forth and so on and so there's no notion of of well like i said there's no definitive europe there is just no. European kingdoms, and then Europe should be European in that sentence should be like have asterisks and footnotes. <laughs> um, it's you know, so yeah, that this is something I find really, uh, I'm really happy to see because it was once again now you could make an argument that there are permeable borders to Europe. Uh, even nowadays, it's not as cut and dry as all that. Far no, from it. no, no, but. But once again, we have more of an established tradition and so forth. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I'm not going to get into it. It's a bad thing. <coughs> but it's, um, <laughs> it's generally it outweighs the bad, outweighs the good, I think. But I don't want to get into it right now. Not that important. But I do like that vision on history, that there is no... Um, because once again, you can change religions. You can change the culture of an area. Culture is also not a fixed point. No. It is a process that I find very interesting. The third one does this better than the second one. Yeah by tremendous amount, I would argue, you are even, uh, if you are a a large ruler in a certain area, then you might be something called the culture head. If you're the culture head, you can guide the culture and it's, um, it is trivialized once again, because it is, uh, it is still a video game. It needs to be a mechanic. So once again, you will never do a perfect depiction of culture in a video game, I would argue. Or rather, um, if you make it a mechanic, that is, you can still, like you know show culture that's good that's fine that's whatever but um to make it a mechanic you're always going to have to cut some corners here and there but you can shape the culture as in uh you're going to introduce these innovations to this culture and you're gonna if you are powerful and charismatic or whatever enough then you can uh differentiate uh, differentiate your culture from the main culture and you can create your own subculture yeah. and so forth and so on and same thing goes for religion, because religion is 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 its own thing, sure, but it's heavily interwoven with any notion of culture, I would argue. Contra- and, <laughs> contrary to yeah, what the, the 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 papal states and the pope would say then and now, <laughs> uh, Catholicism is not a single thing over time. It changes a whole fucking lot, and for good reason too. Yes. Yes, definitely, and. Yeah, anyway, I do like that perspective on culture and religion. That they are, as we have said many times throughout this episode, <laughs> they are also just processes and social constructs. So, and those things change 
through time and space. Wow, what a concept. Um, sorry, and let's not get facetious. No, but, no, you're right. Yeah. And uh, to add to that point even further, like there's such a thing as the, um, the, the Jura by, by law, uh, states mm -hmm. and, and uh, certain realms, kingdoms, and even empires. However, which are sort of predefined semi-historically, not really. You can't create ones that aren't attached to that. And uh, these things can change in different ways. One, certain ty certain realms or, or claims or, or places that you hold can become by de jure or by law uh, over a certain period of time, which you can predefine by the game rules. Um, so even that which is supposedly predefined can change. And I, I'm not entirely sure, but I believe titular titles can become the Euro titles if held long enough, something along those lines. So yep. even that, which is supposedly predefined and stable and whatnot, that still can change. That still can change. So yes. if anything, these games show history is fluid. History is possible and history is change and changing. So there are no obvious conclusions, no obvious results, no determined endings to anything. And uh, hell, sometimes that'll work in your benefit and you'll randomly inherit a, an empire. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think that another to add on to that is that you can create different kingdom titles in, if you start at the year 700, then you can create in the year 1100. For example, you can, you can create the kingdom of Sicily up to a certain point in time after in the later middle uh high middle ages and later middle ages uh it's the kingdom of naples ah. because it uh, changed over time so even so this du jour uh, that's how i pronounce it um <laughs> is uh, is is not a fixed thing it is even this which which demarcates like you said county regions duchy regions and kingdom and empire regions uh this changes over time as well so everything is subjected to time and space, as it should be. Exactly. Yeah. So if you're looking for a definitive answer to how much are we, uh, how much, to what degree are we allowed to harvest history for contemporary expression of art and entertainment? <laughs> surprise, surprise, we haven't cracked that code. Not and yet. all that we, uh, well, I think, and I think Frank will agree. I'm so sorry once again. <laughs> Um, I, once again, everything needs to be a discussion. Everything needs to be negotiated. Yeah, and we can also fill a whole podcast about how should we renegotiate our past and and history and yeah. our perceptions of it. Once again, and to bring it full circle again, I will not be mad at, or be frustrated, or offended, or mad, or whatever you want to call it, if you have this notion of sincerity, and I do mean good-hearted sincerity. Because once again, you can be mean spirited, sincerely mean spirited. I suppose yeah. you can be sincerely, even sincerely, Christ, you can be sincerely anti-Semitic as well. So once again, with sincerity, we mean more of a uh, who mm, I don't know if I want to call it this per se, but for lack of a better word, academically sincere, if that makes any sense. Like not necessarily academic, as in you take part of academia, but a appreciation and. Uh, appropriate valuing of history and the many complex processes that are interwoven within looking at history, as we have talked about already a couple of times. So if you're sincere in your approach to depict anti-Semitism, I will not like, you know, 
I don't think we should be as mad <laughs> at that as um, hmm, as making <laughs> as making like expel jewelry a button, <laughs> you know. Hmm. So that's that's yeah. Anyway, once again, these all, long story short, as I was trying to say earlier, all these things uh, need to be negotiated, and the more sincere you are, like kind-heartedly sincere, once again, is uh, the more sincere you are in that in that case the more room i think there should be for negotiation yeah uh yeah the more there's a whole lot of yeah the more and the better in the better faith you engage with it um yeah good faith that's what i was looking for sorry thank you (laughs) no worries uh the better you can create or represent that and even when you fail you're you're not trying to do with with a certain sense of cynicism or disbelief or discrediting no you're trying to genuinely and I think that academic sincerity is a good expression for it. Um, trying to genuinely understand and not just to disprove or question. It's like, but like, okay, how how did it function? How did it work? How did they think? How did they act? And you're never going to find a, an answer. You're going to find like 4,000. And that negotiation, that creation, that possibility and that variability is the result yeah and i think this is once again this is so relevant because of our uh well once again we have always committed historical revisionism yeah and but now with the as the internet does it has accelerated this process as well i would argue uh to name a couple examples that i'm really bothered by is like this (laughs) this uh reconceptualization of vikings which (laughs) once again uh we're not a people (laughs) <laughs> um, it was closer akin to a profession or a lifestyle <laughs> rather than uh, a people. So, so once again, you can call it the Viking Age. Totally fine. Don't have an issue with that. But this, uh, once again, this reinterpretation of both by um, white supremacists who think that <laughs> the, there was this, 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 uh, this beacon of white identity, but there's also this counter-Christian revivalism of Vikings, which... Is also historical uh, revisionism. I do then. I'm a lot once again. uh, I have a lot more patience with the latter group because the I, I can get behind some of the rhetorical goals. Goals I would argue. Yeah. Once again, to talk about uh, medieval tropes, is that the church is bad and was responsible for everything bad. The church did a lot. Yeah. I would know. Yeah. Um. (laughs) But um. Yeah, it's yeah. So, but then to say it's the sole evil and everything is thanks to the church. And when we depict the medieval church, or when we um, depict something that's clearly supposed to be the medieval church, think of Song of Ice and Fire, think of whatever. <laughs> um, it's then often the villain and so forth and so on. When, yeah, that's a great way to depict throughout history millions of people. Good job. Yeah, um, that's that's not it somehow. For me personally, I mean, um, I will point to one of the best representations of this I've seen lately, uh, which is the excellent Obsidian Studios game Pentiment. Play it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. So yeah, this this whole uh, the, once again, I don't want to say that this is just a thing happening now because it's probably happened always. We talked yeah. about it a bit earlier as well, but this current idea of uh, so-called revisionism to fit some kind of idea. Uh, even to say like, oh, Christmas is fake or whatever. It's stolen from pagans. And like there are elements stolen from certain pagan festivals. 
but Saturnalia was not like once again it's, <laughs> it's once again it's, it's much more <laughs> complex and it's not as simple as to say Christmas is a lie it's, it's just it's a Christian ploy or whatever it's, <laughs> the church just stole this and then like ah it's uh, citation needed um, question mark uh, source question mark please <laughs> thank you um, yeah so there's that's that's the whole thing and once again uh, well th that's uh, there's yeah. a whole question Sorry. about that use of the word stealing um, because yeah appropriating stealing whatever yeah because that makes a really big difference and the, uh, even in terms of incorporation and then it's like oh we talk about the Romans did the Romans steal a lot of beliefs or they incorporated adapted how how did that function um so you know that there's there's a lot of discussions and that's not in defense of the Catholic Church you don't need to do that no. but some sense of understanding and especially that's the idea understanding the people who believe and engage with yeah. those beliefs and not trying to do that with ugh, you know that that kind of attitude that's like oh but you're just a fool um yeah it's like okay but why, in what ways do they believe? What does that mean? How is this interacting? And why why is it functioning like this? And not necessarily, it's like, oh, you're bad, and this is stolen, and this, 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 and that. Again, this is not in defense, but in, in an effort of understanding. And sometimes that can mean understanding why certain things were acted in that way. And they weren't intentional. They were necessarily malicious, even if they were bad. Um, yeah. To give an example, um, and uh, this is not necessarily contentious, but uh, just stick with me here as I make the point, <laughs> please, dear listener. Uh, but uh, missionary work in terms in terms of the colonization wasn't always necessarily evil. It wasn't necessarily thinking in terms of cultural destruction and all that. Yes, that happened, and yes, it's indefensible, and yes, it's really bad. But if you try to offer the lens, okay, but they didn't necessarily want the destruction of people. Um, then you can have different conversations when you think about institutional roles or the roles of individual missionaries in certain circumstances and situations, which can offer different perspectives between someone, for example, uh, like Columbus and a missionary or a different missionary in a different place, but at that same time period. All this to say... History is a lot more complicated than it might seem, and historical processes, especially involving religious figures, authorities, and institutions, change wildly and act and occur in various different ways and processes. That's the point. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you somehow didn't catch on to that yet. <laughs> I would say, is there anything else you want to talk no, about? No, I think we elements? covered a lot for an hour and 40 minutes. It's, uh, what's your favorite crusade? So <laughs> let's say I'm, let's just do something arbitrary here. Let's favorite crusade. Uh... Favorite historical anecdote of uh, medieval era is also welcome. Ooh. Oh, I will give an anecdote, which I've told you before, uh, which is a great joke, but that does not work in other languages. Um, you mentioned Pepin the, the Short. Uh, in Portuguese, yeah. uh, <laughs> the name becomes, with the title, with the epithet, really, it becomes. Cucumber the Brief. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> which is endlessly. Imagine learning that as a, as a teenager. The most funny, the funniest shit you've ever seen. And still hilarious. Poor fella. Still really fucking funny. I stand by it. Um, 
<laughs> anyway, um, yeah, that, that's that's my linguistic anecdote. Uh, but there, there are a lot of funny stuff that happened. Because if you look at it, there's a lot of funny stuff that happened throughout history. And that's great, too. Definitely. Uh, I would uh, bring up to, to, to go on a little bit about the whole accepting... <laughs> Jewish people is not bad. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the Polish kingdom of uh, when the Great Plague was breaking out, the Black Death, uh, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it, um, was largely unaffected <laughs> by um, the plague because Kashimir the Great um, accepted the Jews in his uh, kingdom, and in turn, <laughs> sorry to be uh, to be vulgar about this, <laughs> but in turn the Jews showed the Polish people how to wipe their ass. And yeah, no. this is uh, this this somehow prevented a lot of death due to unhygienic practices. Imagine Wee. that, uh, and gave the bagel, created the bagel in Poland. Sure. You're welcome. Um, it's <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it originally started there, but there's not a hinder there, and uh, hence why it's popular in New York as well. Maybe who knows? Sure. But other than that, it's um, New York City. I mean, but it's um, yeah, I do like that as a little small because I have a bunch. Yeah, that's, I don't endorse Dutch colonialism, but it's uh, other than that, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah. So anyway, that's that's uh, that's that's my fun little anecdote. Otherwise, uh, I'll go off on the, uh, a bunch of them. Um, oh well, maybe two more. So <laughs> there's there's a what we know about Vikings to dissuade this notion of white supremacist approach uh, approach to Viking identity. Is that we know a lot of about Vikings through Muslim scholars as well. Huh. Uh, look at even Fatlan's uh, work, and who like described. Uh, I don't know if it was him or someone else, but uh, another Muslim scholar described um, the <laughs> the music that the the uh, Scandinavian people made in that time period as the music of howling dogs. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> There's that. Um, so once again, we we do know uh, a lot of people. Uh, like approach the fucking age as through the uh, the conservation work of Christian monks and like some Icelandic sources as well, and so what we know is just from Christian monks, and that's just not true. And this game kind of rejects that narrative as well. It doesn't treat Christian European sources as definitive or yeah. whatever, and I think that's good. Oh yeah, and, absolutely. Um, one of the sons of Ragnar Lofbrok, um went to a small Italian. Uh, city i forgot it's it's north of rome i forgot what it's called but below pisa so there you go um i've demarcated the area and he sacked it thinking it was rome so that was really funny um <laughs> yeah uh, once again i do like viking history by the way so it's it's really difficult to see either this hyper positive interpretation of a group of people that was down with slavery, mind you, because I remember people talking about Vikings enslaving people. It's like, well, that's a white supremacist interpretation of it. It's like, nope, just historical. I can't believe you make me feel so uncomfortable by even approximating me to white supremacy, you asshole. Like, it's just historical. I, ugh, anyway, I, I, eh, well, never mind. I, I do, uh, as much as I, once again, want to support their overarching goals question mark i will never support historical revisionism as much as i would like to but uh well no i don't think i would like to but once again i do like the overarching goals that people are trying to do sometimes through historical revisionism but this is very much a means that i don't support ever so yeah that's uh, that's my closing thought i guess 
uh, shrug. If <laughs> there was nothing else from your side of things, no, I, th- I think we, we, I generally think we covered a lot in, I mean, uh, quite a decent amount of time, but still, I think we were very synthetic in how so much we talked about. All right, then, then thank you everyone so much for listening, and we'll hopefully see you soon. Take care, everyone.